Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 3. We are returning to our study of the Gospel of John. It was a real honor and privilege to be able to fill uh, the pulpit at New Home Baptist Church last week, but there's no place like home. It's wonderful to be here. Last time we were together, we discussed that we wanted to consider, we were looking at John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We said we were going to consider that as one larger section and preach essentially two sermons covering that section. Last time it was verses 14 and 15. Today we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21. Last time we were seeing that Jesus had explained to Nicodemus that he was here on this earth. He was incarnate to be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. He was here to bear the curse of the cursed. And this was to happen so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Last time we were together, we left also on a bit of a cliffhanger regarding why it is that God would do this. And today we will set out to answer that question. We'll find the answer, in fact, in the first verse of our section in, in John three sixteen. I'm quite sure that all of you in here could quote this verse by memory. It's a very familiar verse. It's a very beloved verse and rightfully so. We find in this verse some of the greatest, most profound, yet incredibly simple truth. The truth of the love of God. It's quite common to quote Martin Luther when we look at this passage who said of this passage that it is the gospel in miniature. He said that because it's a succinct statement of the message of the gospel that God loved the world and he gave his son so that whoever believes could have life eternal. My concern for us this morning, though, is that this verse might be so familiar to us. It's so common. We know it so well as far as being able to recite it, that perhaps we might be in danger of no longer being quite as impressed by the truth in this verse. This verse contains life-transforming Truth, And I mean that wholeheartedly. Thinking about the love of God as shown in Christ to ruined sinners. Meditating on that, my friends, it will motivate holy living. It will motivate sacrificial serving. It will empower healthy marriages and so on and so on. So let me urge you and all of us this morning that by the power of the Spirit, Let's see this verse in all of its beauty. In our passage today, we're going to see that God demonstrated his love for the world by sending his son so that we might believe in him and be saved. And the world demonstrates their love for darkness by rejecting the son in unbelief. If you would, please take your copy of God's word. Stand in honor of the reading of God's word. 
John 3, 16 through 21. This is the word of the living God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beautiful truth of this verse. Lord, there is very real sense in which I am just just so incapable of really conveying the depth of beauty in this verse. But I pray that by the power of the Spirit that you would empower my speaking and empower the receiving of your word. Help us to see, help us to understand, and help us to love what we see. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. I gave you all of the the headings last time we were together. Our next heading here today that's going to look at verses 16 through 18 is the presentation of God's love. Now, if you remember last time we were together, I said that we would be considering this section of Scripture as though it were John's commentary and not Jesus's words. I, I want to very briefly First, walk through my reasoning behind that thinking that way about this section. Uh, And I mainly want to deal with this because if you have a newer version of the NIV translation, the quotation marks in your Bible stop at verse 15 and verses 16 through 21 don't have quotation marks. That's for the newer versions of the NIV. And why is that? It's, It's... Before I move on to that, some of your other Bibles will have a notation that will say commentators think that Jesus ends at verse 15. And why is that? It's because the original Greek did not have quotation marks. It's very simple. The original manuscripts, they didn't use quotation marks to indicate when someone was speaking. So translators, they use basically just look at the context clues, look at language look at the words that are being used, and that's how they make the determination where to put the quotation marks. So I don't want you to think, well, this guy doesn't agree with the Bible, uh, because that's certainly not the case. So hopefully you've come to learn that already. But it's because these quotation marks are not inspired by God. They are added later by translators. Now, I believe that this is John's commentary in verses 16 through 21, but I want to be very clear because truth be told, it doesn't really matter if it's John's commentary or if it's Jesus still speaking because the truth is still absolutely the truth. 
it still means what it means and says what it says. So, but I do want to give you that note, especially for those of you who have the old, newer versions of the NIV. But as we look at our text, uh, we notice that the first word here is, is for. And it seems like a really small word that we are prone to overlook, but it's connecting what was just said in verses 14 and 15 to what is about to be said. And that's why we're looking at this as one big section, because he's saying for. Why why does that matter? It it, it indicates to us that that John is explaining now the great motivation behind the Son of Man descending so that he might be lifted up. That's verses 14 and 15. If you want to, if you missed that, you can go back and hear that on YouTube where we walked through the significance of that, of Jesus bearing this, the curse of the cursed. And he says here now, the, the motivation, the reason for this is because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here we see the manner in which God loved the world. The word so here, a lot of times we, we understand it as meaning so much, but it actually means in this manner It's the same word. If you look at verse eight, he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So it is verse 14. And so must the son of man be lifted up. It means in this manner. This is a paraphrase. This is how God loved the world. This is how he gave his only son. We've heard this from other places in scripture, haven't we? Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4, 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. This is how God shows his love. He loves in this Manner, In other words, God loved the world not with a a half-hearted love, not with a distant love, not even with a passive love. No, God shows his love. And it is most clearly seen in the sacrificial giving of his son. Now, this doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. It just sounds like, you know, vacation Bible school information unless we understand and realize both the infinite worth of the son of God and the infinite love of the father for the son. We learned of the worth of the son and learning that Jesus is God, didn't we? We learned that right from the word go in chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. This tells us of How valuable the word is. He's God. And all things were made through him. And this word became flesh. Chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we learned of his infinite worth. But what about the love of the father for the son? Father has always loved the son with a perfect everlasting love. Love. 
Even in the incarnation, the father continued his unquantifiable love for his son. Look down at verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. The father loves the son. In eternity past, they shared this perfect love together. I would point you to later on, go read Hebrews verses chapter one, verses through three chapters one through three. You learn about how the father sees the son. The writer of Hebrews is attributing all of these Old Testament Psalms to the son, that it's the father speaking to the son, saying that he's going to give him all things. He's going to have a seat for him. He's going to anoint him with gladness. But in chapter three, he explains that the son or I'm sorry, in chapter one, he explains that the son is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature that the father appointed the son as the heir of all things. And he's given him the seat at his right hand. We can never fathom the depths of the love that the father has for the son. There is nothing then that the father could have done to show his love for the world more clearly than giving his son. Last week, as you know, I preached at New Home on Christ's love for his church in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. And we see all of Paul talk about the love of Christ. Christ expressed his love for his church most explicitly by laying his life down for his bride. But how often do we think of the father's love for us in giving his son in the first place? We are loved by the son and loved by the father. Who can think of these things? Who can truly understand and comprehend the depth of this love? That omnipotent, all-powerful God loves the world. That's what this verse is here. It is an explicit statement about the display of the immeasurable love of the Father. That he gave his Son, the one whom he has loved perfectly for all of eternity. Friends, I can tell you when I look at my own son, I can tell you with certainty that my love for him is not quantifiable. I love him deeply and I want him to know that love. Yet my love is imperfect because I'm just a man. So it's beyond the grasp of my feeble little mind to fully comprehend just how much the father perfect Holy, omnipotent, eternal, everlasting Father loves the Son. I can't wrap my mind around it. That's why it's so soul-stirring to think that even though the Father loved His Son so much, that He gave Him to the world. He gave Him to the world. We see the object of the Father's love here is His love for the world. This is just even more breathtaking. Because world here doesn't mean planet. World here is referring to people. It's referring to humanity in general. 
We know that God has a special love that is reserved for his people. But we also see here that God loves the whole world. He loves the whole world. We heard from Ezekiel last week that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He asks, why would you die? Why does he say that? Because he loves the world. You know what common grace is, don't you? This is how we see it every day. Every day we see the love of God for the world in common grace. Common grace is all of the things that God gives to everyone to enjoy. The sound of rain, the smell of rain, the taste of food, the sound of music, the warmth of a loved one, relationships, financial stability, everything, everything that everyone enjoys, all of the material and even emotional and mental things that we can enjoy in this world. This is common grace. And God allows people who are in rebellion against him to enjoy those things. God fills people's lungs with air and they turn around and curse him with that air. He gives them the ability to speech of speech and they use that ability of speech to curse him. This is common grace, but all of these common graces, they pale in comparison to the extravagant display of the father's love for the world in the giving of his only son. It's nothing. It's like trying to compare the, the light on your iPhone to the light of the sun. It is completely different. The love that the Father has for the world is shown in the giving of his son. But he didn't do it flippantly, did he? There was a real purpose. There was an intention of the Father's love. And we see it here. We see the word that he gave his only son. That Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is telling us the purpose. It's the intention. It's so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We said last time that we were together and we say this again today, that this shows us the willingness of God to save. He's willing to save the world. And we are learning that he's willing to save the world because he loves the world. Can you imagine this? Think about the world right now. How corrupt it is. The sin-loving world, the lost in darkness world that wants nothing to do with God he loves. And what about you? Think about your life before Christ. Think about your own sin-loving heart. Your own God-hating heart that you had before Christ. Think about your deadness in sin that you were in before Christ Jesus. But the Father loved you and sent his Son so that you could believe in him and be saved. It's like the song says, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast Beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. To make a wretch 
his treasure. He's not a far off and distant God commanding that everyone find their own way to him. He has moved towards us in love. He has given his only son to bear the curse of the cursed. In other words, the father has done everything to make a way for sinners to be saved. They need only believe. Isn't it amazing what we've seen in this chapter? Because it's almost very difficult to reconcile what he's saying right now with the wind blows where it wishes and you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. God is completely sovereign in con- and in control of saving people. It's up to him who he wants to save. You have to be born again. You can't do anything to cause it. Verse 16. But whoever believes will be saved. Both of these things are true. They're both true. God is sovereign. He chooses and you must believe. Both of these things are held without explanation or apology in Scripture. And we love it so. You can't assist it. But at the same time, you must accept the free offer of salvation. And isn't it amazing? The word whoever. That this call is for whoever will hear it. It is for the obvious sinner. It is for the one whose sinfulness is hidden away. It's for the poor people. It's for the rich people. It's for smart people, for ignorant people. It's for people of all ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. It's literally for whoever will believe. You don't need to be a good person because there aren't any good people. You don't need to be a religious because religion won't help you. You need only believe. In this passage, John deals with those contrasting themes, but also the contrasting themes of belief and unbelief, eternal life and condemnation. We see that here, that if you believe, you won't perish, but you will have eternal life. Perishing doesn't mean, as you know, that you will never experience death. All of us have a day where we will pass on to the next life. What he's referring to is final judgment. You won't die the second death, but instead you will have eternal life. But there's something very interesting to look at there. He says, but have eternal life. Friends, did you know that if you believe in Christ Jesus, you have eternal life right now? It's not later. You have it now. Well, how can that be? Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer, John 17, 3. This is eternal life. What is it, Jesus? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We can have that right now in this lifetime. We can know the only true God and the only Son who was given to the world in love. We can spend the rest of our lives coming to know this great love of God. This great God who loves us so profoundly. And then we can spend all of eternity basking in the boundless love of God in a sinful in a sin-free environment, sin will be gone. 
that we will be able to taste and see the Lord is good like we never have. The Psalms tell us that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the very mission of Christ. It was a life-saving, eternal life-giving mission. He did not come wielding the sword of judgment. He was not sent in wrath. He came with open arms, beckoning the world to come and know the love that the Father has for the world. In fact, he even clarifies this for us in verse 17, doesn't he? Look at it with me. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God gave his son in love to save. God did not send his son in wrath to condemn But there will be a day when that is exactly the case. When Christ comes back to execute judgment on the world. But as sinful as the world is, and as it was at the time that Jesus came, God did not send Christ to condemn it, but to save it. The Jews were expecting this conquering warrior Messiah who was going to Execute his, the all execute judgment on all of their enemies. As we learned last week in Jacob's sermon, the Jews hated the world. They hated the Gentiles. They couldn't wait for Messiah to come and put them all to bed so that they could rule and reign with Messiah. They were God's chosen people. Everyone else was, they were guilty Gentile sinners. They would have expected a Messiah who came to condemn. But instead, the Messiah came to save. Why? Because God loves the world. Christ came to make a way for those who are condemned to be saved. Those who are perishing can have eternal life. And they can have this not by working really, really hard. We learn that from Nicodemus. Not by being externally righteous. But simply by believing in the son that was given in love by the father. But not all of the world will be saved, will it? This was Christ's mission, was to come and save all who will believe. But there are many on the broad path that leads to destruction. It is only through the gate of faith that we find the narrow path that leads to life, and few find it. And why? Because many refuse to believe. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only son of God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned because he has eternal life right now. He will not perish. He has trusted in the love gift of the father to the world. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, not just later, right now. I want you to notice that. But he also employs the word whoever once again. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Just as whoever believes will be saved, no matter how sinful, whoever does not believe will not be saved, no matter how righteous they appear. This most immediately reminds us of Nicodemus. Nicodemus in all of his attempts to be righteous In all of his law keeping and law teaching, he will not be saved if he remains in his unbelief. And so it is today. 
the person who goes to church and tithes and prays and reads their Bible, listens to Christian music, does all of the outward, external, righteous activity, but does not believe in Christ Jesus, they are condemned right alongside all of the obvious sinners. You'll find devout churchgoers who never trusted in Jesus in hell. And you will find degenerates, the scum of society, who did trust in Christ in heaven. Do you know why? Because it's not ultimately your sin that will cast you into hell. It is your unbelief. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3 of that letter, go read it. He walks through the anger that God had towards the Israelites in the wilderness. And in verses 12 through 19 of that chapter, he's explaining their sinfulness, their rebellion and their disobedience. And then he concludes at the end of that chapter that the reason they did not enter into God's rest was because of their unbelief. Their sin, their rebellion, the disobedience, all of that was caused by unbelief. We don't think, often think of condemnation in this way, do we? We usually think of it just as the punishment for sin. And that's true. Your sin will be punished in hell or on the cross. I am not changing, trying to change what the Bible says about that. That's absolutely true. But friends, there will be a great multitude of redeemed sinners in heaven. In fact, Every single human being who is there is a redeemed sinner. Two people can commit the exact same sins their whole entire life. One can go to hell. One can go to heaven. What separates them is that one believed the other did not. Do you see? It's not ultimately your sin. It's ultimately your belief or your unbelief. The sinners who don't believe in Jesus will be cast into hell for the great sin of unbelief. Revelation 21.8, the unbelieving have their portion in the lake of fire. Think of it. Could there be a greater sin? Could there be a greater sin than to see the revelation of God in nature, to experience common grace every day of your life, to to hear the gospel, to hear of the love of God is displayed in Christ Jesus being given to save sinners and then not believe it's true or not trust in Jesus who suffered and bled and died So that people could be saved. But instead trust in your own works. That is the greatest sin. Before we move on from this verse. I want to call your attention to the fact that John writes. Whoever does not believe. Is condemned already. Right now. It's present. This points us to the reality of the wrath of God. That looms large over the heads of unbelievers. Right now. They welcome the deluge of wrath that awaits them by refusing to believe in the only Son of God. Isn't that perplexing? And that's exactly why this third, really, heading is the perplexity of unbelief. Verses 19 through 21. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. 
The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John writes here in his typical, very black and white way, as you have probably noticed already in our time in this gospel, even just right here in this passage, John only ever sees two groups of people in their relation to God. There are those who reject Christ and those who receive Christ. There are those who are born again, and there are those who need to be born again. Those who believe and those who don't believe. And now, those who come to the light and those who love the darkness. Now, these are not, ex- these are not a bunch of two separate groups of people. These are different ways of speaking of the same two groups of people. You either love the light and you're born again and you believe in Christ. Or you are in your unbelief, you are in darkness, and you need to be born again. There are only two groups of people. Why do I point this out? Because so often we like to put people that we think are good or people that we love and cherish very near and dear to us. We put them in this gray category. This third way. They're not exactly a Christian, but they're not exactly a sinner. You know, they're kind of trying to figure their own way out. Friends. I love you enough to tell you that Scripture knows nothing of that. Scripture only knows of two groups, dead in sin or alive in Christ. And it is not loving to pretend that those who are dead in sin are in some separate category. They need the gospel. Friend, they need to hear that God loved the world so much that he gave his son So that they might believe. He says, and this is the judgment. This means this is how the judgment is made. Or this is how God has judged the world. Remember, he just wrote about those who don't believe in Jesus. That they are condemned already. And now he's saying uh, that this is how we have arrived at this judgment. The son didn't come to condemn. But now we're talking about judgment. So what's going on here? And why is he saying that they're condemned already? Because the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. But when Jesus came, the light turned on to reveal what was already there. I was reading a report that was put out by some weather experts that was talking about nocturnal tornadoes, tornadoes that occur at night. It said that nocturnal tornadoes are usually weaker tornadoes than the ones that occur during the day. But the nocturnal tornadoes are actually more deadly. Why? Because people don't see them because they're asleep. And it's hard to communicate that there is danger afoot when you are asleep. Now, if you are awake and you are listening to the ravaging of the storm, you can know in that moment that there's probably a lot of destruction out there. But it's not until morning comes when the light shines that then you can see how bad the destruction was and so it is here Jesus as the light came and turned on the light and it was revealed how bad the destruction the world lay in was 
He didn't come to condemn it. But as the light, by nature of being the light, it exposed what was already there. It exposed a world that loves the darkness. Darkness here refers to the darkness that we are in outside of Christ. It's the darkness of the ignorance of God and the darkness of sin, the darkness of unbelief. Light is the revelation of God, the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? People loved the darkness rather than the light. That means that they preferred the darkness over the light. Here comes the light of the world. The word become flesh. The one from whom we've all received grace upon grace. The one who came as a love gift from the, the father. Not to condemn the world. But that the world might be saved through him. And the world in darkness said then. And continues to say today. I would rather have the darkness. I would rather have the darkness than the love of God. They would rather have ruin, devastation, darkness than all that is available to us in Christ. They are rejecting him. Why? Because they love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You know what this teaches us so clearly? That there are no neutral parties in this world. There are not any people who think of God and say, well, I could take them or leave them. There are either those who hate the light or those who love the light. Do you see that in this passage? There's only two options. Those who love the light come to the light. Those who hate the light flee from the light. They stay away from the light. They hate it. They don't want it. Because everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Just as John has been using the language of whoever, that whoever believes can be saved. Now he says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. This is referring to people in darkness. They do wicked things. They loved the darkness. Their works are evil. This is true of everyone, my friends, who is outside of Christ. No matter how nice they are, how friendly they are, how outstanding of a citizen, how well received they are in the community. Friends, if they are not in Christ Jesus, they hate the light. They don't come to the light, not because they haven't made that choice yet. They're, they're trying to figure out their own way. They're on their own faith journey. They don't come to the light because they hate the light. That's what this passage tells us. Now I know that that is a hard pill to swallow because we think of our loved ones, don't we? We think about the people who are near and dear to us and we think that cannot be true of them. They've never said that they hate God. They've never said that. And they're very nice and they're very friendly and they're very cordial when I invite them to church. Very kind and compassionate. But here we see very clearly 
They either love the light or they hate it. It's polarizing. They live in darkness because they love the darkness. They want to be hidden. They want to be out of the light. Some people are better at hiding their depravity than others. Some people are brazen sinners. Some wait until the cover of night. Some put on a show of righteousness. Some go to church and wait until they're away from church and hidden from view to indulge in their sin. But rest assured, everyone who lives this way hates the light. They are not neutral. When you share the gospel with an unsaved loved one and they reject it, they say, let me think about that. No, I don't know if that's for me. You need to call to mind this passage that everyone who doesn't come to the light hates the light. And you don't use that passage to beat them over the head. That passage then breaks your heart and causes you to pray for them and share the gospel with them even more. They want to continue their charade of morality. They don't want to be seen for who they really are. John 7, 7, Jesus speaking, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. They hate that. People hate Jesus because he's the light. He shines the light on people who love hiding in the darkness. They hate that. People who love their outward appearance of good while hiding away their great sin. They hate Jesus. I've said this before, but you can ask people that you know are not saved if they think they are good people. Nine times out of ten. Yeah, I think I'm a good people, a good person. I don't really lie, cheat, or steal. I'm pretty good. I try to do a good deed a day. I pay my taxes. I've never been in any legal trouble. I've never missed a day at work. I'm a hard worker. I vote Republican every single election cycle. I, yeah, I think I'm a good person. Even though they have a God-hating heart, they think that they will be granted access into the kingdom of God and escape judgment because of their own works. But this text is teaching us that they are already condemned, that God's wrath abides on them even now. Jesus came as the light of the world. That is an event in history But the way that the sentence is written in the original indicates that that light is still on, that that light is still in the world. Well, how is that? If Jesus is the light of the world, well, the light is not on with the incarnate son still walking this earth. But what did he say about the Holy Spirit, that he would convict the world of sin? And how does he do that through the word of God? That shines the light on people. Do you know why people hate the Bible today? Why people love to call you a Pharisee or a religious zealot? Or you, you have religion, I have relationship. To anybody who takes the Bible seriously, it's because they hate the light. They don't want the light to shine on them. They want to stay in the darkness What about our world? Why is there drag queen story hour today? Why are companies like Disney pushing LGBTQ characters and themes in their shows and movies, even the ones made for children, because they hate the light? 
Why do even church-going, professing Christians reject what the Bible says? Because they hate the light. And why do they hate the light? Because they don't want to be exposed for who they truly are. They want to keep up the charade of morality. That's what the scripture does, though. It shines a light on people. Professing Christians who aren't really Christians, but want to hold up the facade of being a Christian, will not go where the Bible is preached. Rest assured of that. They will not go because that's where the lights are on. It's almost a physical representation of a spiritual reality that in so many churches today, when the service starts, the lights turn off. I'm not saying that's inherently sinful, but it's kind of funny, isn't it? It almost represents exactly what's happening. I want you to stay in the dark. In fact, I've talked to people who say that the lights being off makes them feel more comfortable. When the lights are on like we have it in here today, it makes them feel very self-conscious because people can see them. It's easy to hide in the dark. And people in spiritual darkness love their darkness. But God demonstrated his love for the world by sending his son so that we might believe in him and be saved. Do you know what the world does? They demonstrate their hatred for the son by rejecting him in their unbelief. But there are those who do indeed come to the light. Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those in the dark love it so and they refuse to come to the light. But those who have been born again, those who believe in Christ Jesus, they love to have the light shine on them. Shine it so that it can be clearly seen that God has done a work in this heart. Christians love to have the light shined on their life. The light of Christ, the light of Scripture. Yes, even the parts of their heart that are still needing to change. And isn't this what David prays to God in Psalm 139? As he's talking about the omnipotence of God, as he's talking about the sovereignty of God and the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. He sees him everywhere. He can't escape his view. Then David says, search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Do you know what David is saying? Turn the lights on. Shine a light on me. Shine a light on my heart. See if there's any darkness that's still in me. And deal with me. Take it out. That's what a Christian talks like. And an unbeliever says, well, that's offensive. Don't judge me. But a Christian comes to the light and they love the light. They invite the searching eyes of God to know them, to reveal their sin. Why? Because they don't want it. Just as those who are in darkness, love the darkness and hate the light. Those who are in the light, love the light and hate the darkness. And they want to be done with it. They see the love gift of the father. They see the, that Christ bore the curse for them. What do you say that if the son has given so much, if the son was given in love, 
by the Father, so that I might not be condemned by my sin, which I rightfully deserve. If the Son bore the curse for me on the cross, then I dare not hold on to any sin that he died for. So shine the light on me. When the light shines and reveals good works instead of evil works, it's revealing that this work has taken place in God. We glorify him. So friends, which one are you this morning? Have you been hiding from the light? Have you had an appearance of godliness while living in darkness? As we've seen, the father gave his son to the world because he loves the world and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But if you are still in your unbelief, know this, that the wrath of God abides upon you even now. But you do have a way to flee the wrath to come. Trust in this love gift of the father. Trust in the curse-bearing work of the Son on the cross. Flee to the light. Be exposed as a sinner and believe upon Christ Jesus. You will be saved. But if you are in Christ this morning, I want you to be reminded of God's incredible love towards us in Christ. That you once were in darkness. That was you. You were in darkness. And now you love the light. And why? That's a work of the love of the Father that he has wrought in you by giving the most precious gift he could give, his only son. I think that's a fitting passage for us to look at as we come to the Lord's table this morning. So if you would, please stand.